developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hey everyone, welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake. I'm your host, Reza Aslan. And I'm Rain Wilson, the co-host. Co-host, meaning with the most. Meaning that I am above you, clearly. In the in the competition over podcasting, I am the Will? host and you're the co-host. I, I get I, it. That was not my what I meant by co-host. I said co-host with the most, meaning that I am the premier podcaster between the two of us. And um, you know what? I think that um, we need to have a podcast off. A podcast? A pod off? Pod off? A pod off. I'll, I'll pod off you right now. I'll pot off you right through this computer if I need to. That that sounds just, that sounds gross. Here's the deal. We're so competitive, aren't we? We're very competitive people. You and I are competitive, certainly, um... But we're, we're in competitive industries, aren't we? I mean, you're an actor. Like, you're literally competing for a role. Yes. Actors compete for roles. Yeah. But you're and a writer. You compete for the top spot on the New York Times bestseller list. That's right. And I hate everybody else ahead of me on that Above list. Above you. And you watch those little charts. And isn't that what we do? It is. It's all about, like, who's best? Who's number one? Who can, who can deliver? I audition for a role, and then I... I look in Deadline Hollywood and I see who got it and I'm like, Arr. I hate that guy. Right? I mean, I have to be honest with you. Like, I am like, I mean, I'm competitive in weird ways. I'm, I'm competitive, not in yep. sports, you know? Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm, I have this like, maybe it's my Persian heritage where I, I have like this feeling of guilt about the fact that I'm competitive. So I try, I pretend that I'm not competitive. I'm always like, no, 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 after you, after you. But deep down inside, I'm like, you son of a bitch. The Persians call that tarof. Tarof, yeah. Tarof, it's a very, very complicated thing. In what ways are you competitive, mostly competitive? Well, like, for instance, every time a sort of, you know, fairly young brown person succeeds in media, I'm like, fuck that guy. I'm going to admit something right now. I'm going to, I'm going to actually confess yeah, something. Yeah, this is, this is good. Okay. You're making yourself like, quite vulnerable here. I, I love Hassan Minaj. He's a friend of mine. I want him to succeed. But every time he succeeds, I'm like, why is that fucker succeeding and not me? <laughs> I'm brown. 
Yeah, I guess I'm the same way with with portly middle-aged bearded character actors like Nick Offerman. I love him. We're good. We've been good friends for almost 20 years, but he gets a role and I'm like, damn you, Offerman. No, but this culture of competition, it's like, it's internalized, right? We're all like this. Everybody is like this. Yes. Our whole culture is based on this. Everything is based on competition and on contest. And this is why we need to dig into this life's big question, which is what, Reza? Are we biologically wired to compete with each other? I mean, isn't that what Darwin taught us? Isn't that what the whole point of evolution is, right? Winners and losers, and the winners survive, and the losers become dust. We need to explore this idea. Um, I have a buddy who is going to be on the show, uh, Dr. Michael Carlberg. He is an author. He's a professor at Western Washington University. He wrote uh, two books, Beyond the Culture of Contest, and a very highly regarded TEDx talk on the same topic. And his new book that just came out, which I haven't read yet because it's very fancy. There's too many big words. It's called Constructing Social Reality. And it builds on the work of his first book by examining relativism, cynicism, and materialism that the culture of contest gives rise to and how this undermines our struggles to conduct more peaceful and just social forms. So lots of isms, basically. Just so many isms. And I guess his point is that maybe we're not actually hardwired for survival of the fittest. Maybe that's not, maybe it's not contest and competition. Maybe it's cooperation that's like the salvation of the human race. Maybe there's more that makes us tick than contest and competition. Maybe there is a smattering of cooperation, mutualism. Could it be the survival of the kindest and not the survival of the fittest? Let's find out. Michael Carlberg, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's great uh, to be I, with you. Uh, I loved your TED Talk uh, and this whole thing about the culture of contest. Man, it was so fascinating to me. Could you just uh, for our listeners, I mean, I already get it. I'm, I'm smart enough to understand it. But I mean, for, you know, our dumber um, listeners, uh, what ex- exactly is the culture of contest? Well, really, you Rosa, know, you want to start this whole conversation by insulting our listeners. Oh, okay, okay, great. That's great. <laughs> isn't that, isn't That's that, just great. Isn't that for just... For our stupid no, listeners... You know. Please explain the thesis of your book and your life's work. Just for the dumb ones. Okay. The smart ones already know everything about you, Michael. All just four the, dumb ones who are the, listening. For the dumb ones, exactly. We need the introduction. Thank you. M- Dr. Carlberg, please. Uh, well, you know, in our society, we organize almost every social institution around competitive principles, right? Our partisan political system, our legal adversary system, our capitalist economy, our educational systems, most forms of recreation and leisure. And uh, that's the culture of contest, this this assumption that human nature is fundamentally competitive and aggressive, and we should therefore try to harness all that selfish energy by organizing most of what we do around a competitive model. But, but aren't we naturally yeah, isn't competitive? That like, isn't that, that actually isn't that, the case? Isn't that true? I mean, you see it everywhere. It kind of feels like it. It's it's on the news. It's like you mentioned sports, and um, it just it feels Politics. like humans are really naturally competitive. Well, I mean, it's no question we're capable of 
competition. You know, we're wired for both competition and cooperation. But in our society, we cultivate and value uh, competition in ways that actually, in many ways, exaggerate its, its influence in our behavior. Um, in fact, if you if you look back, you know, studies of hunter-gatherer societies show actually they're far less competitive than modern societies. So, you know, if you think about like what is the sort of natural state of human nature, uh, it's actually far more cooperative than what we see in our society today, where we actively cultivate competition in virtually every sphere of our lives. But I guess like, I mean, I feel like I remember in high school being told that that was the entire point of the human condition, that the, that the you know, nature of evolution going all the way back to Darwin's theories was precisely that it's the survival of the fittest, that we're competing with each other about who gets the boar or, you know, who can climb the tree and get the nuts or whatever. I mean, is, isn't that hard? You said it was hardwired into our brains, but it's more than that, right? It's part of our evolutionary process. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, so you just said two things that often get conflated. Survival of the fittest and competition. And the assumption most people make is that uh, the most competitive are you know, the more fit to survive. But actually, there's really been a whole recent movement in like evolutionary biology recently, which has shown that mutualism, the ability to cooperate both within and across species, actually increases fitness and is as fundamental, if not more fundamental, to evolutionary processes than competition. Hmm. So we've been misunderstanding Darwin, is that... Well, uh, yeah, but actually Darwin is not the one that actually equated survival of the fittest strictly with competition. This is uh, overlay on Darwin's thinking. Darwin talked about survival of the fittest, absolutely. But he didn't equate it with competition in any sort of simple way that it, it has sort of come to be understood in popular popular understanding. Here's a fun fact that um, I'm going to throw out there. This is not something that I know. I'm not smart enough to know this. It's in my research document, to be perfectly honest. But it was Herbert Spencer who summed up Darwin's thinking and used the phrase uh, survival of the fittest, actually. And secondary fun fact, he's the inventor of the paperclip. That son of a bitch. <laughs> so he's probably a billionaire who also coined the phrase survival of the fittest. And how did he survive? He invented a paperclip. <laughs> well, in fact, here's the here's a funny thing about Herbert Spencer is that what it seems to me like what he was trying to do was take Darwin's evolutionary theory and 
kind of wrap it into a, a social theory for societies, right? Because that's that's really what survival of the fittest starts to mean. It's not just about, you know, uh, the evolutionary process that allows you to pass on traits to your children that will make them more likely to survive the harsh reality of Neanderthal life or Paleolithic life. And it's much more about like, well, you know, white people are just smarter than non-white people. And maybe civilization needs to root out some of the the people who aren't as strong uh, either like physically or or emotionally or whatever the case may be. I mean, I guess that's that's what's really fascinating about what you're saying is that if we're questioning the very notion of competition as an evolutionary process, well then we're also questioning everything that came out of that, right? Like political Darwinism and social Darwinism and economic Darwinism. Essentially, civilization as we've known it for the last 200 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so so what happened, you know, Darwin and a number of other people, you know, of his era really helped sort of articulate some of the underlying mechanisms of evolution. But those then got grafted onto a whole sort of social political ideology as you refer to social Darwinism, that we've since uh, used to justify implicitly or explicitly uh, how we structure society, how we structure all these institutions. And uh, it's actually not justified by a sort of sober look at evolution. And, you know, beyond that, one can also add the concern that uh, even if evolutionary dynamics are fundamentally competitive in this context of like the struggle for survival in a context of scarce resources, well, humanity has solved the problem of scarce resources. We're no longer in the struggle for survival. Mm-hmm. Our challenge is not is not actually uh, not enough resources. Our, our our struggle really is is has more to do with the just and equitable distribution of resources today. So the whole logic of the struggle for survival in a context of scarce resources doesn't even apply to humanity. There's another aspect to to Darwin's work. Um, I'm not sure if he used this phrase or if other people use this phrase about Darwin, but I've heard this this idea of survival of the kindest. This is kind of a big thing now. Like survival of the kindness is how a species climbs up the evolutionary ladder. So does that work in terms of animals and does that work in terms of human societies? Yeah, I mean, what you're referring to broadly is mutualism, right? It's this idea that when species cooperate, they both do better. So, you know, most uh, trees and plants rely on fungi in the soil to help fix nitrogen and feed them to the roots. And in exchange, those fungi get other benefits, nutrients that they draw from the trees. That's mutualism. So cooperative relationship. On some level, the entire plant kingdom and the entire animal kingdom exists in a mutualistic relationship with the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. Or you look in the human body, you know, there's people, biologists estimate now that for every human cell in our body, there are about 10 foreign creatures, foreign organisms. Wait, so, what? So we're only actually about one in 10, you know, our own human self. Some people are starting to describe the human body not as a body, but as an ecosystem, the human ecosystem. Do you hear that, Randy? That's, You've got foreigners living inside of you. Foreigners! That's, that's mutualism. I'm, I'm more concerned about aliens living inside of me. <laughs> yeah. Think about it. If there are micro-aliens living inside each of us, 
that's a whole other podcast, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I get what you're saying, Michael, that, you know, um, even if it is true that like way early in our evolution, uh, it was about competition and survival of the fittest and all that. And that's, that's questionable. And even sounds like even Darwin was not uh, necessarily promoting that view. It sounds like it was much more this, uh, this jerk off uh, Spencer um, and his fucking paper clips. Um, but I, even if that were true, what you're saying is, okay, but we're not in that world anymore, right? We're just in a different world. And so it, it doesn't work anymore to compete um, and, and uh, you know, the sort of winner-take-all mentality that the only way that we're going to survive now is if we cooperate with each other. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our success as a species, both reproductively and technologically, we've transformed the conditions of our own existence. I mean, we literally don't live in the world we evolved, in, you know, our bodies initially evolved in. So we've changed the conditions in which our species now exist. And the problem is we haven't adapted to these new conditions. So we're still sort of, uh, you know, living with inherited cultural practices and patterns and values and codes that may have worked reasonably well when there were very few of us on this planet, but that have become an existential threat now that there are seven and a half billion of us with, you know, <laughs> technologies that, that increase our impact and our danger to one another a thousandfold. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or something preventing you from achieving your goals? Look, we all have these issues, you know? I mean, we're in the midst of a pandemic, a slowly dying democracy, the world is on fire. We're punching people in airplanes. If you're not somewhat anxious about the world right now, you're probably not paying attention. And if you are paying attention, you could probably use someone to talk to. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can start communicating in under 48 hours. This is not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional therapy, people, done securely online. I highly recommend it. There's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available. And this service is available for clients worldwide. I know we have a lot of listeners. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist as well. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. And also, you don't have to sit in those uncomfortable therapy waiting rooms. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. And so you can change your therapist if you need to. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy. And there is financial aid. BetterHelp, it really, truly wants you in these very dire circumstances to start living a happier life today. Visit their website. There's tons of testimonials there that are posted daily. That's right. Just go to betterhelp.com slash milkshake. That's better H-E-L-P. And join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. This is a special offer for Metaphysical Milkshake listeners. You can get 10% off your entire first month of therapy at betterhelp.com slash milkshake. Take care of yourselves. Kick off 2022, friends, with a better checking account with no monthly fees. Chime is an award-winning app and debit card with no overdraft fees, foreign transaction fees, monthly fees, or service 
fees. With over 60,000 fee-free in-network ATMs at many, many locations, like most Walgreens, 7-Eleven, CVS, you can access your money when you need it, where you need it. You can also send money to anyone, even if they aren't on Chime, fee-free for you and no cash-out fees for them. Reza, this is, this is changing everything, this Chime. You know, yeah. first we had the banks with the checks and then all of a sudden you could wire money and then you can do this and that. Now there's, then there was PayPal and now there's, yeah. you know, Venmo and Cash App and crypto and blah, 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 blah. This is the next generation. It's uh, Chime. It's, it's a whole new way to encounter banking. It's easier and fee-free and very consumer-friendly. Yeah, I mean, look, have you ever tried pulling money out of like a 7-Eleven ATM machine? It's like 30 bucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> That's I gotta just, true. I just wanted a donut. I, I got to get my Slurpee on, bro. So make your first good decision of the new year. You can join over 10 million people using Chime and sign up only takes about two minutes and it doesn't affect your credit score. Get started at chime.com slash milkshake. That's chime, C-H-I-M-E dot com slash milkshake. And now the actor will tell you the fast part. Go! Banking services provided by and debit card issued by the Bancorp Bank or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Get fee-free transactions at any MoneyPass ATM in a 7-Eleven location and at any AllPoint or Visa Plus Alliance ATM. Otherwise, out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply. Sometimes pay anyone instant transfers can be delayed. The recipient must use a valid debit card or BHI member to claim funds. Maybe back in the day, cavemen got ahead by being better at clubbing other cavemen and that promoted them. And then we misread Darwinism um, in terms of competition and survival of the fittest is what we need to survive. And here we are at this point where we're our own worst enemy, right? And there needs to be a major psychological shift uh, if we're to survive. So this culture of contest or competition is not just like, oh, hey, here's a good idea. Wouldn't it be nice to get along? Kumbaya, utopia, hippie. It's more like, hey, if we are going to survive as a species, we have to shift our entire way of doing things. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And, and ironically, that's quite consistent with what Darwin said. You know, these the process of natural selection, which is what Darwin fundamentally was focused on, right? Uh, it has to do with how well-suited a species is to its environment, to the conditions in which it lives, right? And if those conditions change, it drives change in species. Uh, and that's the situation we found ourselves in. Our conditions have changed. Now, it's not going to drive change in our in our sort of physical you know makeup as a species it's it, what it's going to drive change in is our cultural uh, habits our, our social patterns the way we organize society the way we raise young people the values we impart all of those sorts of things but fundamentally yeah we have to adapt now and the longer we drag our feet the longer we resist the the more human suffering we're going to see. It's, it's a function of the environment we live in now. Yeah, I mean, look, you've, you've totally convinced me. Uh, I just feel like it's such a, such a tall order, you know? Um, like, I get it. Of course, we live in a globalized society. And of course, we're, um, you know, in a situation in which, you know, we're not all fighting over the, the same resources. Like, we're not all trying to hunt the same exact animal. It reminds me, actually, of, of this quote by E.O. Wilson that I really liked. Um, he says... Within groups, selfish individuals beat altruistic individuals, but groups of altruists beat groups of selfish individuals. And that makes sense. But if you think of the globalized society as one big group, and 
you know, most of us, 90% of us have decided, okay, we're all going to have a, 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 you know, a culture of, of uh, kindness, right? That it's survival of the kindness, like, like uh, Rain was saying, that it's uh, mutualism, cooperation, all those wonderful words. But if 10% <laughs> of that group is like, no, fuck that, uh, it's all mine. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like the whole thing. And we're thing, screwed. We yeah, really are screwed. Like the whole we thing need crumbles. seven and a half billion people to get on board with this idea, don't we? <laughs> Not just 7.3 billion people, because those couple hundred million people could then be yeah. ruling as our overlords. By the way, I'm pretty sure we just described America, didn't we? I think we just basically... <laughs> but you know what I'm saying, right, Michael? I mean, this, this is a tall order. Oh, yeah. This is not going to be easy at all. I mean, but the reality is we don't have a lot of choice. And there are an awful lot of people, I would say majorities of people today, who are working in various ways towards the kind of change we're talking about. So really, I think it's an increasingly small minority that's, you know, clinging to patterns of the past, often that, uh, you know, accrue to certain privileges to certain groups of people at the expense of others. Uh, but I mean, what I see working with young people, for instance, today, you know, at the university is more and more young people are seeing beyond that. They're, they recognize that this, the game's up, so to speak, like we can't continue to play by the rules we've been playing. Now, speaking of the rules that we're playing in, what about economics? Because isn't the whole economic system built on the same premise? It's capitalism is competition, you know? Um, in order to make money, you have to win out, you know? Uh, Blu-ray beat Betamax or VHS beat Betamax and it won and it won the marketing battle and it won the consumer battle and it won out. And that's how we economically move forward. So uh, are you I mean, saying like there scripture. needs to be for some people, right? Like the, yeah. the free yeah, market yeah. economy is like practically scripture. Yeah, there's there's the Bible, there's the Constitution, and there's Adam Smith. Yeah, and Adam Smith would be um, appalled at the way the current economy is structured because Adam Smith was a, mor was a moral philosopher. And we have an economy today that is, is completely unmoored from, from moral commitments. I think it's helpful in this regard to actually uh, to to draw a distinction between capitalism and markets. You know, market economies, I have no trouble with. I think we need market economies. Capitalism is and just one... Just describe a market. What's a market economy? I mean, the, you know, the relatively free exchange of goods and services, right, between people who are uh, innovating to produce them and people who need them. There, You know, we could get into more technical detail, but... but the, the problem is capitalism is only one way to organize a market economy. All market economy, there's no such thing as a perfectly free market economy. A perfectly free market economy means, you know, I kill you if I don't like what, you know, what I bought from you. That, that's a completely unrestrained market economy. No rules. Contracts can't be enforced. There's no such thing as currency. Like that's, you know, a truly unregulated free market. There's no such thing. All markets are regulated. It's a question of how. Capitalism is one way of organizing a market, and it's a way that privileges the accumulation of wealth and capital in the hands of fewer and fewer people. So capitalism clearly has become problematic. It's a sort of hyper-competitive, uh, social Darwinistic way of organizing markets. We need to disentangle capitalism from markets and think about more rational, sustainable equitable ways of organizing markets. 
So it's not a choice between capitalism and like centrally planned, you know, communist economies. The choice is between capitalism and more just and sustainable market, you know, relationships. I don't know, Rain. This sounds suspiciously like socialism to me. It sounds a little like socialism and it sounds a little utopian. And again, if you have a market economy like this, like a just and moral market economy, you still have that small percentage of people that if they want to fuck everyone over with their with their monopoly that they gain, then they're going to win. How do you, how do you answer the 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 charge that what you're talking about is just utopian hippy dippy falderall? I'm sorry. But say what now? Utopian hippy dippy falderall. Well, I mean, again, the, the situation you're describing is the one we live in right now. It's, it's just a description of reality. And, and my argument is that uh, it's simply no longer viable. Like, it's collapsing around itself. Uh, it's more and more people are actually uh, paying the cost. You know, the pandemic has brought this out clearly in, in this country and around the world. It's so a sort of gross inequities. And at some point, uh, people don't stand for it anymore. The, the challenge is, you know, how do they work for change? You know, one is you, you bring out the pitchforks or the guns and, you know, you have a sort of perpetual state of instability and conflict and violence and war, which much of the world is continues to be engulfed in, partly as a result of these gross inequities. The alternative, which is what I advocate, is, uh, you know, Populations, communities can begin constructing alternative systems, alternative economic arrangements, alternative systems of governance, even for you know regulating those arrangements. Uh, and so there's a path forward, which is actually to construct new models and attract people to those models because they're more just and sustainable. If if the people who eventually are sort of benefiting so much from, let's say, this sort of distorted and unjust, you know, arrangements of the present day. If they don't got if they don't want to get on with the, the new model eventually, they'll find themselves with no one left to play with, so to speak. I mean, you can build new models uh, independently of whether or not, you know, people want to exploit the old the old models, the old games. Are you aren't you talking about kind of a commune, like a communal system, like a, a system within a system, like of all of the people of some like progressive area, like the the Berkshires in Massachusetts said, we're gonna start our own currency and have our own markets and our own trade and whatever's going on in the United States, we're going to have a more just and equitable system and we'll put food aside for the poor and we'll have volunteerism and et cetera, et cetera. Isn't, isn't that what you're talking about? Uh, not communes because what communes, you know, the commune model is to actually try to withdraw from society and build something somewhere else sort of in isolation. Mm. That's impossible. Our, you know, our interdependence today ultimately makes that impossible. What I'm talking about is actually building up new systems, new models, right within the sort of shell of the old. And a lot of other people have written about this. I mean, you know, fundamentally, this is what Gandhi was talking about. He talked about a constructive program, which meant building up new ways of, of organizing economic life, social life, political life, right within the shell of this sort of oppressive British Raj at the time. That's what he was trying to sort of, you know, develop. Now, uh, he didn't advance as far as he had hoped with that particular model. And a lot of his like civil disobedience was, you know, an effort to sort of throw off the British Raj in the hopes that he could continue to advance that constructive work. 
But that's the fundamental idea is we build right where we are new systems as they attract more people. That's how change, how radical transformative change eventually comes about. Okay, so talk us through what this world, this kind of post-competition world could conceivably look like, whether it's utopian or whatever. Uh, you know, I mean, we if we progressively phase out this kind of uh, competition mindset, right, this culture of contest that you talk about, um, what, what, is it, what does it look like? What does the world look like that way then? Well, I don't want to presumptuous, you know, be presumptuous and offer some sort of grand design with all sorts of detailed architecture of the new world. There, in a lot of ways, my argument is we have to learn our way forward. We don't know all the details, but we can apply certain principles and begin to learn our way forward. Uh, a few things already, I think, that are becoming reasonably clear. For instance, just start in the educational domain, which we're all familiar with. There's all sorts of evidence, and it grows every year, that the sort of competitive grade-based model where you reward and punish students, you know, based on their sort of competition against one another, actually undermines the motivation to learn. There are a lot of experiments happening in education right now with people trying to figure out what does education look like beyond competition. So, we need to learn our way forward. We don't know exactly what the you know, future world model, you know, the model of education, the perfect model is, but some general principles are emerging and learning processes are under play. We see similar you know, process of experimentation and learning in the economic sphere. For instance, the emergence of, of benefit corporations, B corporations recently, you know, provides a whole new way of, of actually structuring a publicly traded company that moves it beyond this sort of narrow, almost pathological short-term profit motive at the expense of all other values. That's, a, that's a, um, an experiment worth sort of following and building, along with other sort of cooperative economic ventures. And, you know, cooperative economics is not new. It's been around for a long, quite a long time. We need to pay a lot more attention to it. Uh, ideally, create, you know, more opportunities for that sort of a learning path. So we, we can look in every domain of sort of social life and say, well, where are the sort of cutting edge, innovative uh, experiments being done that are trying to move beyond the culture of contest? What can we learn? How do we build on that learning? Mm. You know, I had a light bulb moment during the last election, and it was during a Democratic debate, and Kamala Harris got in a like a a one-two whammy punch on Joe Biden. And it was front page news for all of like eight days of just like, oh, wow, she skewered him. She got him. Oh, he wasn't expecting that. Oh, wow. I mean, and her, she went up in the polls. Look at that. She went from 11% to 27% because she got these zingers in. And I thought, what the God, fuck are we doing? What are we doing? Why is a measure of someone's leadership capability uh, equated with their ability to get in a zinger, a pre-planned zinger, by the way, at a debate. This is ridiculous. Why, are, why don't we look at people's accomplishments, at their plans, um, at, their, at their way of cooperating with one another and not their way with competing with one another? So when I saw that happen, I was just like, you know what, I am done with this whole system, this whole democratic system of 
uh, raising, uh, oh, they raised $170 million in their war chest. And then they won in this debate and they got zingers in against the other person and they're saturating the airwaves and they're going to win. And they're a winner and the other person's a loser. Like, I'm just like, I'm just so done with this whole system. Does CBD work? Well, 90% of doctors said their patients have used CBD to treat a health condition. Oh, I mean, I guess if nine out of 10 patients use CBD, that does speak volumes about how safe and effective it can be. I have definitely used CBD to help me sleep sometimes when I'm like in my super anxious mode and up and awake at three in the morning with my head spinning like... That's so interesting. Like, I just got this package from CBDDistillery.com, and there was this whole thing about how you can use this to get a good night's sleep. I haven't done it yet. You're telling me it works. Yeah, it does work. And there's no, like, hangover or druggy kind of feeling at all. It's just kind of blissy. So let me tell you about CBDDistillery.com. With over 2 million customers, CB Distillery, get it? CB Distillery is the source I trust. When patients tell their doctors they use CBD for help with their health health conditions, what are some of those conditions, Reza? Well, we talked about sleep. Mm -hmm. Apparently 90% of CB distillery customers said they sleep better with CBD, including one Rain Wilson. If nagging discomfort is a problem, 80% of customers said CBD helps with discomfort after physical activity. What about nagging neighbors? No? Mm, I don't know if it helps with that. Well, in general, if you're looking for some peace and calm these days, then I guess you would be wise to explore CBD. If you haven't discovered the power of CBD, you're missing out. Go to cbdistillery.com where you order online with no prescription required and enter Milkshake for 20% off. Again, enter Milkshake for 20% off at cbdistillery.com. That's cbdistillery.com. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, and South Dakota. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Politics is another arena that this uh, culture of contest works in, right? Uh, so what does democracy 2.0 look like? What is? How do we govern ourselves? How do we govern 300 million people uh, without kind of this rabid uh, competition? Yeah, so I, that's a really important question. And I think here again, we've like confused the idea of democracy with the idea of competition. So mm. and even the idea of elections, right? The, the assumption we make in modern societies is that democratic elections have to be competitive. And how else could they be? Well, the reality is they don't have to be. There are other models. There are people learning about those models. So, you know, let me just take you through a sort of thought experiment. Imagine if you, you know, were starting a country and you created a constitution and 
everyone, you know, every adult citizen had the right to vote. Every adult citizen was eligible to be voted for, even if they didn't want to serve. And whoever got the most votes was tapped on the shoulder and said, we know you didn't want to do this, but you were just elected to serve and you're going to have to give up your other priorities to serve the community now. Imagine a, a constitution organized around those principles. It's actually more democratic than what we're used to today because when you vote, you can vote for anyone you think is qualified, who has the, who has integrity and honesty and a service ethic and demonstrated the capacity to you know to to serve the public. So you have true freedom of of, yeah. of choice when you vote. Well, and whoever is running, by the way, are are entering, rolling up their sleeves and entering knee deep into this culture of contest because they are they are competitive and they want to win and they want power. Because isn't that ultimately what this is all about? is like the quest for power. And so yeah. then you're opening up the playing field to, to those that don't want power, you know? And then you could, we could elect someone like Bill Gates. Maybe that's a terrible example. I know he's a satanic <laughs> baby. You just want microchips in all of us. That's what it is. Planting right? microchips in all of humanity. But, you know, someone who's a successful businessman who is also a philanthropist and has a lot of big ideas and works well with others, but isn't necessarily seeking power in the same way that a politician might be. Yeah, in fact, I, yeah. I heard it said once that if you think you can be or if you think you should be president, that is disqualifying because yeah. if that, you know what I mean? Like if that's yeah. who you think you are. Yeah. then, you know, you've got issues that will, you know, necessarily not make you a very good person. Hmm, megalomania and narcissism in a politician. Yeah. Interesting. So you take the competition out of the Democratic election, and what you're left with is you don't have parties, you don't have the corrupting influence of money, you don't have ego and ambition as corrupting influences, and you have true freedom of choice. That sounds like something a little more democracy 2.0 to me. Mm -hmm. And there are already groups in the world experimenting with these principles, you know, proving the sort of give, providing the proof of concept around this, this sort of electoral model. So again, we need to learn, we need to generate knowledge about how to do these, how to do these things on scale, but, but the general principles are there and learning processes are already advancing around these things. So going back to what Rain was saying, so what, What's the obstacle then? I get the societal obstacles in the way of this kind of idea, but I feel like the obstacles to the to the kind of society that you are talking about, it's more than societal. It's more than institutional. It's more than, you know, even economic. It's sort of deep-seated. It's within us as individuals, right? That there's something about the way that you're talking about uh, cooperation and kindness over competition and, you know, winning that rubs people the wrong way, you know, that it's not just because they've been told all their lives ever since grade school that it's all about competition and survival, etc. It's that there's something about what you're saying that almost kind of takes away my individual agency, right? It's like you're asking me to be part of a group and to think in terms of what's best for the group instead of be an individual and think what's best for me. I mean, th there are a lot of obstacles in the way of the world that you're 
um, envisioning. But that seems to me the biggest one. But what you're describing, Reza, is, is a frequent used kind of talking point on the political right, which is like, hey, as soon as you take away my individual liberty in any way, shape, or form, right. you're going to quash kind of individual initiative. And if, we're, if I'm beholden to the needs of the group, I'm not going to be able to thrive and I'm not going to be able to go in a basement in Silicon Valley and be Steve Jobs and start Apple Computer. Even though I have no plans of doing that or any, you know, ability to do so, I might, right? That's, it's it's that whole view that gets, you know, uh, poor people to support policies that actually help rich people because, you know, one day they might be rich. Yeah, you know, I mean, when we when we begin to sort of move beyond the culture of contest, it actually opens up opportunities for individual agency and creativity and developing our creative potentials. Because, again, you know, the, the, the challenge of the world we live in today is so many social groups actually never have the opportunities to do that because of the inequitable distribution of resources and the various sort of injustices we live with today. In fact, most of humanity never has the opportunity to realize their sort of inner creative potential. Mm. That's a function mm -hmm. of the world we live in today, of the culture, of the social Darwinism we live in today, right? So it's only if we move beyond that that we actually begin to liberate our sort of true individual uh, sort of latent capacities and, and creative talents and those sorts of things. But of course, it takes some social imagination to recognize that, especially if you're born in a country like the United States, where we've been indoctrinated into this you know, very sort of narrow, competitive, individualistic, you know, worldview. Yeah, I mean, I hear what you're saying that, you know, in the world that we live in now, a world of plenty, you know, cooperation is the, the proper path forward. But don't we constantly hear about how we're running out of resources and, you know, water is scarce and the planet is dying and, and there's going to be, you know, all these food deserts everywhere and the zombie apocalypse is right around the corner. I feel like now more than ever, it's about like what's mine and, you know, keeping the zombies at bay, isn't it? Well, it definitely feels that way, I think, to a lot of people who are shut out of the global economy today. Right, who don't have access to the sort of bounties and the privileges that are available, uh, but again, that's a that's a function of um, how unjust and inequitable the, you know these arrangements are. There's nothing you know. There's no food shortage on this planet. We have enough food to feed you know everyone alive today and several billion more. The problem is the distribution of food and, and access to food and, and healthy food, right? So, you know, one could also, you know, add the layer that the sort of dysfunctional governance that we live with today that's not even able to sort of, I mean, we subsidize the least healthy food choices in the United States today and, uh, and, and make it very difficult to find healthy food that's not because it's more difficult to grow healthy food. It has to do with how the system's been rigged to subsidize, you know, sugar and corn and, and cheap calories, yeah. which can be grown by large agro-industrial sort of complexes that, you know, that, that concentrate large amounts of wealth and put a lot of farmers out of work in the process, you know, small family farmers and such. So really, these are questions uh, about, about uh, how 
poorly or how well the world's resources uh, are organized, not about whether we've, you know, are somehow in some, locked in some struggle for, over scarce resources today. We have the technology and the know-how to take care of everybody on this planet, health, food, uh, all these things. And we're only getting better at that. The question is about distribution and access. So, but if we're not competing, Michael, like what pushes us to do our best? You know, what drives us towards excellence? What motivates us forward if we're not competing? Yeah, so I mean, again, this is, I think, another one of those myths that people only strive for excellence when they're competing with others and when they're driven by self-interest because it helps to sort of unpack how we even understand the word competition. People today talk about competition. What they actually mean is self-interest combined with striving for excellence equals winners and losers plus progress for the winners, right? Mm -hmm. In a sense, that's kind yeah. of the, you know, the formula, the implicit understanding. But if you actually take the self-interest out of that equation and substitute it with, with altruistic motives, with, with motives that about, you know, contributing to the betterment of the world one lives in, that's, it turns out a very powerful motivator for excellence as well, for excellence, for creativity, for innovation. So, uh, humans are motivated by, th by things other than self-interest, it turns out. We're motivated by love and, and compassion for others, by, by actually just the intrinsic reward of being creative. Think about all those artists out there who give their life to creativity and never, never even you know, earn a living. Clearly, they're not being motivated by self-interest. They're being remote, uh, motivated by the intrinsic reward of creative excellence. And the same is true in many other fields. So if we disentangle self-interest from the pursuit of excellence, what we find is there are actually equally, if not more powerful motivations at play that humans can tap into. I feel like you've completely convinced uh, Rain and me, and like I'm a, I'm a different person over these after these <laughs> 45 minutes of talking to you. Uh, but what about everybody else? Like what... What's the incentive for, you know, everyone else to, to accept this idea of a culture of cooperation instead of contest? Well, I think we're, we're sort of staring down the barrel of two of the biggest incentives in, you know, in the history of humanity right now. One is uh, this pandemic that we're living through, which I think clearly teaches us that we are totally interdependent on this planet and that ultimately we're not going to solve these sorts of things, certainly not you know, like prevent them in the future or learn how to manage them well in the future without, you know, levels of cooperation we've never <laughs> previously, you know, developed. Uh, and global warming is the other one. It's, it's, it's an existential threat. It's planetary. It again shows our sort of total interdependence. And it's something that no country can solve by itself. No group can solve by itself. Certainly no individuals can solve it has to be a global, you know, cooperative enterprise on a scale that, that again, we've never been able to achieve. So, so we live in this moment of history where the stakes have never been higher, the incentives never greater, and the consequences of sort of failing to adapt uh, at some point will become sort of unimaginable, and we really won't have a choice. So, Michael, what, what do we do? So you play, you're going to be the therapist now. The listener is the patient. 
you know, change has to start on a small level and it starts in our thinking process, right? On, a, on an individual level uh, before it can move into a family group and then a larger group in a neighborhood and a community and whatnot. Like, what would you want people to leave this with to say, how do they, how do they shift their thinking around this concept and make active, tangible change in their lives moving forward? Yeah, I mean, I guess one thing, one way to start is just to be willing to question some of the deepest assumptions that the modern world is built on and realize they're social constructs, like the world doesn't need to be this way. So a willingness to question deep assumptions and widely held sort of views, and then a willingness to sort of uh, do the internal work, you know, overcoming the ego and, and, and those competitive impulses that we do have, they are part of us but they're not the only part of us. And we can actually develop our, you know, our cooperative and altruistic potentials with effort. Uh, so doing that inner work, but of course, one can't do that in isolation. Like most of that inner work actually occurs in relation with others and in service with others and in practicing these you know, qualities and virtues and interdependencies with others. So seeking out groups who are able and willing to learn how to create new patterns of social relationships and and ultimately you know new institutional forms and and practices well, where do uh, you find these groups like on meetup.org you want to meet down at the uh, at the farmers market on on sunday morning and um, do a trash cleanup <laughs> well i think you can actually find once you begin to realize what it is you might be looking for it's not so hard to find people doing these in various domains i mean just follow the smell of patchouli there, yeah, <laughs> yeah. There, there are people involved in my, you know, relatively small city I live in, in with their cooperative economic ventures happening. There's educational systems being developed that aren't based on the principle of competition. There are organizations who are trying to learn different sort of models of leadership and decision making. So, I mean, all of that is available in a town of 100,000 people that I live in that I can seek out. Um, religious communities are often not exclusively. I mean, there's a lot that happens under the name of religion today, but many religious communities have developed uh, patterns and, and systems of, of cooperation and mutualism. And not just internally, but there's a growing, you know, sort of interfaith movement in which people are realizing we need to learn how to cooperate with mm -hmm. people who have other faith beliefs. So I think there's a lot of opportunity if, if we really begin to look. But we have to expand our imagination and and make the effort. We have to certainly get up off the couch and look for, for who's doing this kind of work around well, us that we can join. And also, it seems like we have to begin with the self, right? I mean, start here. Start with yourself. Uh, you know, figure out how to change the way that you think about how you interact with the world and with society. You know, stop thinking of survival as a zero-sum game and, you know, think about cooperation and not necessarily uh, competition and winning. Know that, you know, for you to win, it doesn't take someone else to lose. Like, these, there, if, I feel like there are steps that, was, that you could well, take. That's exactly what you just said. It just really resonated with me, Reza. Like, for you to succeed doesn't mean someone else right. needs to lose. And we're just in that kind of dichotomy, polarization of one up, one down you know, one-upsmanship, literally. And, um, and, and I think you're absolutely right. Like, to go on a daily basis of um, 
hey, am, am I engaging in a process like that in at my work or at my school or at my church or in my family dynamic where someone needs to win and someone needs to lose? Yeah. Like, just change yourself first. You know, it seems pretty basic, but it's a, it's a shift in consciousness. And then hopefully, you know, society will, will follow. Okay, lightning round. Michael, this is a, a little part of the show where we just ask you a bunch of different kinds of questions and then you answer them, you know, the first thing that comes to your mind. Off you ready? The cuff. You ready? Here we go. I'll try. What makes you laugh out loud? Uh, <laughs> question like that. <laughs> uh, what is one thing you hate? Abusive authority. Describe your soul in 10 words or less. Contemplative, focused, uh, wanting to leave the world a better place than I found it. When was the last time you ugly cried? Can't remember. It's been a long time. Men don't cry. What is, what is one thing you know for sure? The earth is round. You sure about that? Really? You haven't, you haven't gone down the rabbit hole of the YouTube videos, mm -hmm. flat earth videos. Okay, and finally, what is your life's big question? My life's big question. Uh, what am I going to do when I grow up? I got some bad news for you, man. I think you found it. Yeah. I yeah. Think, I think you're doing it. Doing yeah. It, stick, stick with it. I think you're in the right... It's working, uh, it's working for you. It's working for you. I think, you, I think you're in the right ballpark. So, Michael, out of all of this discussion, this has been really illuminating. But in your opinion, and just, you know, just between us three right now, like, who was the better podcaster, me or Reza? I mean, yeah, it's not, I mean, not part of this competition thing. Like we, Rain and I have changed. We are different people now. We're, We're all we about have cooperation. Evolved. We're on a higher level. Yeah. It doesn't matter to us one but, whit. But, but just, I'm better, right? I my mean, beyond my that, questions, my me. interjections, I was more articulate. Come on. If we were just going by who asked the best questions, I'm not saying it's important. It's clearly not important. But yeah, but what about bringing me. levity? It's levity me. is important. I think I might have to bring Jad Ebenrod in as a judge to oh, help uh, on. choose this one. Oh, <laughs> fuck him. Guy. He, always, he wins everything. Wit. Our podcast is so much better than him, and we're going to overtake them in the ratings, on the podcast ratings. There can be only one. Michael Carlberg, thank you so much. This was so fascinating. It was like, uh, it was actually, you know, life-changing. Very few podcasts are life-changing. This one was life-changing. Uh, I agree. I think these. I think these ideas are profound, um, and I'm so excited to get you on the show. And uh, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Milkshakers, as you well know, when you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and you ask one of your life big questions, and we like the question, you get to come on our show and ask us in person. And in fact, we have someone here who is doing just that. Uh, Ryan, Ryan, how are you? Pretty good. How's it going? I'm well, man. Uh, where, where are you calling from? Uh, I'm in Indianapolis, Indiana, but I'm from California. Oh. Oh. Nice, nice. All right, all right. Ryan, I understand you've listened to every single one of our episodes. That is phenomenal. Wow, what a feat. Yep. <laughs> I don't believe him. You, you, do you believe him? I don't believe him. There was one episode where Reza wasn't on it. I skipped that one. Oh, that's a good call. Wow. That is a good call. Actually, you're talking about the David Choi episode, which is actually my favorite episode that we've done. Probably the best episode we did was David Cho with no Reza. Yeah. What's, uh, what's your question, man? Hit us. Make us think. So my question for you guys is, 
why do you or why do humans believe in God? Not does God exist. I think that's a different question that I don't find yeah. as interesting. But why do why do we believe? Or why do most people believe? Why do most people believe in God? It Res- is true. Most people do believe I'm in I'm going to hand this to you because you wrote a book God. about God. and basically oh, are, are you talking about, about this book that this. I have right here? Oh, this, this book, look at God, that. A Human History, New York Times bestseller, published by Random House, available at all fine bookstores everywhere and online. All right. All right. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> no, this, look. Rain is right. This is a question uh, that I that I'm very fascinated. We're both fascinated in. I just happen to have written a book about it. Why do we believe in God? Again, that's Ryan was right. Like this question of like, does God exist? Does God not exist? That's a stupid question. Like that's not a, you know, there's no proof either way. Like anyone who can who 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 tells you that they can prove that God exists or doesn't exist is trying to sell you something. You can just ignore that person. And also, I would say that. We should be clear about what we mean by God, right? Because it's weird, this word that we all kind of hold in common and we all have this idea that we all mean the same thing when we say God. But, and the truth is, is that we don't. We don't mean the same thing when we say God. But if if what you're talking about, Ryan, is like why do people believe in some like higher power outside of themselves, you know, some kind of uh, uh, sort of supernatural creative force out there that may or may not, you know, control our destinies. People are divided about that. That is a universal belief. It exists amongst all peoples in all cultures. Wow. Throughout all of human history. That's deep when you think about it. There's not like some tribe that's just completely had never even thought about some kind of great spirit or higher power. Nope. In fact, it is a belief that predates our species. It's a belief that predates Homo sapiens. It's a belief that we have found material evidence for amongst Neanderthals, um, with certainty amongst Neanderthals, with far less certainty among older uh, species of humans. And in fact, there's a lot of sort of cognitive psychology out there that indicates that we may possibly be born with this belief that the belief in a concept of a of a like a you know a spiritual entity or a reality beyond us uh is something that we're born with uh so then <laughs> to Ryan's question why I wrote an entire book about this, and and I can tell you the answer is we have no fucking clue. Well, I can I can say some I can <laughs> add something to that. So I spent some I spent a couple years as an atheist uh, just to try it on, kind of like a How was it like a jaunty cap. You know, it was it was interesting because I needed to kind of like get away from my roots as a Baha'i and kind of find my own way in the world. So in that sense, it was really interesting, but. Here's here's what happened. It just didn't make any sense to me. It just, and I'm not talking about like, does God exist or not? But like the universe without some kind of like greater unifying power, force, energy, uh, will, uh, y- you name it. Like without that in it, it just it didn't make any sense. It's like, well, why? Why is there just stuff? There's just stuff without meaning. And there's just more stuff and all of a sudden there was no stuff and then there's a bunch of stuff and the stuff transmorphs and transmogrifies and then stuff gets gets consciousness that it, it that it just didn't compute 
right? What do you think, mm-hmm. Ryan? I think it's funny that you said that because my follow-up question for you guys was, what does the world look like? What does the universe look like without a God? Because for me, mm-hmm. you said you were you tried on being an atheist. I'm, I am an atheist and that I don't believe in a God. So this, the answer to that, my second question, what does the world look like without a God or the universe? This yeah. is it. Like I'm living that. This is just how it is. How's it, how's it feel? Pretty good over there? For me, it's fine. That's why I think this question is so interesting because for every person it's different, right? For you, it's obviously very important. Your religion, your spirituality, your belief in some higher power, it shapes who you are and how you view the world. And without it, you felt lost. For me, it was the opposite. I don't, I, did, I just never really connected with the, that, with religion or with that belief. But I'm still living my life doing I'm still happy. I still have a wife and a kids and I treat people with respect and I have a moral compass and I do all those things that religion uh, teaches you. Um, I just don't, I just never had that connection. So it, it always interested me to hear why people believe or not. Yeah. And you know what? I'm glad you said that because I want to make sure that people understand. We're not saying that you're like a lesser person if you don't believe in this idea of a higher power or whatever. I am. It, it may am very little, well be true that bit. it, I am a <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm very, kidding. It may very well be true that we are born with this belief. Again, there may be very complicated cognitive reasons why we're why we're born with it. There's all this theory now that maybe it is an accidental byproduct of some other, you know, evolutionary development that happened early in, in our brains. And that as a byproduct of that, like as an echo of that, was this kind of universal belief in quote unquote God. And that is perfectly natural, you know, in the same way that like we don't have tails anymore, right? Or uh, what's what's that org? Is it the gallbladder that we don't really need? What is that? Is that, is that so, the organ that so we don't really need? so many things we don't need. Right, that that maybe that's what it is. That it's a thing that we needed. That's why we're all born with it. That's why it's universal. That's why it's part of our evolution. But we don't need it anymore. The one thing that I do think that is very important that I just want to say is that, in fact, Gallup has done a decade or more uh, of of surveys showing that at least in America, I don't know what it's like in the rest of the world, but at least in America, by far the most moral community are atheists. Yep. That in almost every category, yep. violence against non-combatants, uh, you know, uh, responsibilities towards society, uh, you know, civil responsibility. Like, in almost every category, the most moral community in the United States is the atheist community. Far more moral than Christians, Muslims, Jews come in second, believe it or not, but you know, any other, any other faith community. So there's nothing wrong with you. If you don't believe in God, you're a perfectly fine person. The question though, that I find fascinating is if we're all born with this ability, if it is embedded in our brains, and that's what, that's what the science is telling us right now, then maybe there's a reason for it. I don't know. Maybe not. I don't know what the reason is, but maybe it's because part of being human is the longing for transcendence, the longing for a connection with something that's beyond us, even if we don't really understand it yet. Yeah, I think uh, I think God makes sense. I think it makes things easier. I think it answers a lot of questions that are otherwise impossible to answer. 
and it makes the briefness of life a little easier to swallow. I mean, if you believe that this is just one beginning and you're going to live on forever with your loved ones, as opposed to just what I believe, which is I live for these 70 years and then I am dead and that's it. That that's a little tougher to swallow, I think. Yeah, it can make things a little more complicated because if there yeah. is an all higher consciousness, what does this all, all higher creative force in the universe uh, want from us uh, and expect of us? What's and your responsibility. And why it? were we put here? Toward what end? And kind of figuring that out, you know, on a on a daily basis and a yearly basis is hugely can, stressful. Can be very challenging. Can be very challenging yeah. indeed. But Ryan, these are wonderful questions. I'm so glad uh, that we were also able to have the civil conversation because so so many of these YouTube debates are like, you know, oh, atheists are going to hell and theists are uh, are idiots that are non-scientifically based. And, um, uh, and the fact is we need all of us to be working together to make the world a better place. And... Uh, Great leadership has happened in making the world a better place by the atheists. God bless you, atheists. I mean, we're still going to talk shit about you when you hang out. Yeah. But, but yeah, but this was nice. As you should. Um, this was awesome. Thank you, guys. Wow. Wow, I, Reza, that was mind-blowing. I feel like but, I'm you a know, different person. I feel like I'm a different person, and I feel like this needs to be kind of a different podcast now, doesn't it? I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and In fact, why don't you go ahead and just, uh, you know, take us out? Cause, oh, I mean, no, 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 no. Why don't you, please? No, no, no. You, no. I, I, can't, I honestly insist you are clearly the superior podcaster. How can I be of service to you? How can I let the great Reza Aslan shine? Why don't we just like end this thing together? We, it'll, that's, that's exactly what Michael would want us to do. Right. Okay, right. good. Okay, good. Right. Excellent. So thank so you, uh, Michael, uh, Carl Work, uh, um, and, and rate and well, review some, Metaphysical Milkshake. And, well, and we'll check out the video releases. You can check out the video on... Which, on you, know, I'm, you know what? Maybe this okay, cooperation this thing gonna, isn't really working for us. What about, I know, every other word. Got it. So subscribe, rate, and review Metaphysical Milkshake on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. listen. Hey, cooperation. And by the way, you can also check out the video releases each week on YouTube. You just had to get the I, last word in. You just had to get the last word in. It's always, you always <laughs> have to get the last word in. Oh, man, ah. we're, we're screwed as a society. We are screwed. <sighs> Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It is produced by Safa Samazadeh Yazd, Paris Lane, Mick DeMaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. Original music by Jeff Tang. Look, some people are more competitive than others. Uh, you know, I'm married to a woman who was... Uh, student body president all four years of high school and all four years of college. What? So that 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 tells you a little bit about my household. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Jessica doesn't lose stuff. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.